preaching of God's Word is there in Luke 22 and verses 63 through 71. Luke 22, verses 63 through 71. And there we read, And the men that held Jesus mocked Him and smote Him. And when they had blindfolded Him, they struck Him on the face and asked Him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against Him. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and scribes came together and led Him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And He said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer Me, nor let Me go. Hereafter, shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. Thus far, these words of God. So the preaching here, Luke 22, 63-71, records for us the initial steps toward and including this trial uh, by the Sanhedrin. Now, of course, backing up, we see something altogether wondrous. Man had plunged himself into a state of death, of misery, and this by his own sin. And in being so cast into this state of destruction, he did so by casting off God. Now here is a marvel before us. None less than God Himself, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, has come and took upon Himself our own nature. And as the God-man stands, as the one who would save. He stands as the anointed King and Savior the Savior of sinners. And so the God who had been cast off in the garden and who is cast off by every sin now comes in the person of His Son. And having done much to display His purpose, His power, His commission, His gracious and merciful concern for sinners, we have this record of what sinners do left to themselves. Notice the text. It speaks of the men that held Jesus mocking Him and smiting Him. And so it is that they have arrested Him and they've brought Him and are bringing Him to the place where the Sanhedrin would meet. Now we read earlier in Matthew 26, these who have Him are those who were sent by the chief priests, Caiaphas and others, as well as the scribes, the members of the Sanhedrin. And so they had come out with swords and staves and arrested Him. And Christ had gone with them. And along the way, and before delivering them up to the Sanhedrin for a pretended trial, it is that they already bludgeon Him. And they mock Him. And they ridicule Him. Notice the cruel treatment and the blasphemy that is recorded. And then it is in verse 66 you'll see that they bring Him to the Sanhedrin, this stately and supposedly dignified court where matters were to be weighed carefully in light of the Word of God. Evidence being considered and all other such things to be done decently 
and in good order. And yet, all the records testify that all of this is a mockery. These who were to rule in accordance to God's Word give no cause to think that they were doing so. Matthew records for us, as does others, that there were false witnesses gathered. And so even their testimony didn't agree with themselves. And notice what Luke records. The question before them was, Art thou the Christ? And relatedly, Art thou then, verse 70, the Son of God? And so fundamentally the question is, Who are you? What do you claim to be? And of course, Christ carries Himself with matchless humility and dignity. Brethren, think how a mere word done spoken against us can evoke from us such wrath and how it provokes us so easily. And we think ourselves justified or at least that some degree of it's justified because after all, someone has done something sinful against us. And yet here Christ has been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been ridiculed. And now He's being asked a question which His very life and ministry has publicly shown the answer to already. Everything He's done up to this point has been publicly declaring the answer to these questions. Is He the Christ? And some of you will remember when it was that He was in the synagogue and He took the scroll of Isaiah and He read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon Me. He has anointed Me. And so on. And He rolls it up and He begins to say, in your hearing this day, this Word is fulfilled. Public testimony of His testimony of what and who He was. And then His many signs and miracles all being done in accordance to what the Christ would bring to pass. When John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus, tell us, art thou the Christ or should we wait for another? And he heals those who are sick. He gives sight to the blind. He does all manner of things. And he doesn't say, well, here's my simple word. He says, go and show John those things which you have done. And though there were some things done in private, as you read the Gospel accounts, the grand majority of all of these mighty signs were done publicly. And many times in the face of the very ones who now sit as the Sanhedrin, as a constituted court of the church, to judge none other than the King. Think for a moment how blasphemous all of this is. What pretended indignation for holy things is displayed by Caiaphas and by the Sanhedrin. And yet, in what great contrast it is that Christ, with tremendous dignity, patience, endures all. We could focus on that, and we would wonder, of course, at how it is that Christ endures all. One is noted, He did so because He stood in our own room. He answered nothing and was content to be condemned for our faults, though He was free of all sin in Himself. So there's hope in the passage. And yet the focus of this passage is upon the wickedness of the men. And what we want to notice this morning and focus upon is that when sinners are given liberty, they blindly and wickedly dishonor Christ. Now, this is a fundamental truth throughout the Scriptures. 
John has recorded it for us so plainly. Men love darkness rather than light. That's why they don't come to Christ. Paul testifies aligning various passages of the Psalms together to show forth the wickedness of men. And all of these things are true. We can see it in Sodom and Gomorrah and so on. Their opposition to God. And yet here we see it so pronounced because here are the elite of the church, the chief priest, together with the Sanhedrin, the elders, the scribes, those who have devoted their lives to the study of God's Word, those who have devoted themselves supposedly for the principles of God's kingdom. Now they're given in this hour of darkness a rainless, as it were, liberty to go forth and fulfill their desires. And what is it they do? They stand as Pharaoh. When the curses are ruining Egypt, the finger of God is noted by His very wicked magicians. And yet they harden themselves and they chase away their only hope. And So here we take a moment to consider this contempt for the King shown by sinners in looking at three things. Firstly, the display of this contempt. Secondly, the inconsistency of this contempt. And lastly, the foolishness of this contempt. The display and consistency and foolishness. And as we consider this, two things can come to us. One, we can be humbled for our own sins against Christ. And this is, of course, needed. But a second thing can come in seeing what men, however dignified in office, however privileged in the church, however honored by the world they may be, if without saving grace, this is what is bound up in their hearts. For this is something to realize. Nothing that is being displayed is something being added to the heart of Caiaphas or added to the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees that were there. This is the venting of what is bound up. So brethren, there is something to learn from this, of course, as we consider the reality of what's before us in our own world, which would then lead us earnestly to implore the Lord for His grace. Well, more can follow as we'll see, but we start by looking at the display of this contempt. The contempt must be seen with the clear acknowledgement that the one being so derided is none less than Jesus, the Son of God. Again, the passages of the Bible already have so clearly testified of this. You can go toward the beginning of the whole of this Gospel and you'll see indeed this very clearly uh, testified that in the lineage of Jesus Christ, who is this One that is so born? But it is as He is uh, this promised Messiah. And so if you look for instance at chapter 3, you have this lineage given of Jesus Christ when you see His being the Son as it begins there at verse 23. Jesus Himself began to be about 30 years of age who was, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And it tracks through. And who is this son of Joseph? He is, verse 31, the son of David. And so on. And so His lineage is preserved to show who He is. But then His mighty works are shown uh, to be publicly displayed to declare who He is. And so, without any question, the record is clear who He is. But notice, 
when it is that the people gather him, what they do. The first thing we see in this display is that they physically brutalize Christ. And brethren, this is something to consider well. Because what we see against the person of Christ is also what will be witnessed against those who are united to Christ. So it's important for us to remember this. Christ says, uh, a tremendously insightful statement, the one who persecutes you persecutes me. Right? And so when he meets with Saul, he says, uh, Saul asks, you know, who art thou, Lord? And Saul is given this word, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Right? And so Saul is coming against those who are Christ's, those who are Christians, believers, united to the Lord Jesus. And as this brutality is being breathed out against Christians, Christ acknowledges that fundamentally this is against me. And so it is that we see here the vehement hatred against Christ through the physical brutality. Notice what they're doing. They blindfold Him and they strike Him on the face. So it's not body shots. It's not uh, something that perhaps could be more endurable but full blows to the face. And this is after, it says, that they had already began smiting Him. And so the beatings have begun. He is bound up. He is blindfolded and being beaten. Now, this is a hard thing for us to consider. But imagine yourself walking down the street and you cut a corner between two buildings, perhaps an alleyway. And there at the far end of the alleyway, you see a group of men pummeling another individual. You don't have the slightest clue what's going on apart from the brutality shown to that person. And there you are looking upon it and you're wondering at it and you cannot help but be moved with some degree of compassion, not even knowing the scenario and circumstance. But as you think of that, think of it as well in all of the cases that the world loves to parade before us and to think of police brutality, some of which are not so, others of which are. And when you see those legitimate cases of police brutality caught on film, you think for a moment, here's an individual falsely arraigned, falsely apprehended, and now being brutally treated. And there is a cry of injustice that goes out. And yet, brethren, consider for a moment the brutality shown here is against one who only, always, went about doing good. He was only committed to the cause which would benefit those around him. He came only preaching that which, if embraced, would only do good. And brethren, think for a moment as well. Christians, and perhaps we have to go into different nations in our own thought, we think of those in Eritrea and Afghanistan and other places that profess Christ and they are arrested and they are beaten and they're put in prison. Some are killed brutally by their own parents. And for what cause? Because they have embraced the Savior and they are telling others about the only hope of salvation. What's the point? This is the natural display of sinners against Christ. It's not the universal display. It's not what is always displayed. But here's something we have to realize. If men were given liberty to display the true colors of their heart, this is what would always be displayed. This is what would always pour forth. 
And if you and I think, well, perhaps others, but not I, then we've not communed with our own hearts to realize just how wretched our own sins are. Were it not for the restraining and directing mercies of God, this is what would always be displayed against Christ and His kingdom. The fact that it isn't is simply because of God's wise and providential direction of all things. So think of this for a moment. This is sometimes mocked by people who consider themselves reformed. You know, Edwards would talk about children of the covenant being serpents. And some people say, you know, that's not in accordance with God's covenant. And yet for a moment, look at this. Here are children of the covenant. Do you understand that? Caiaphas is a child of the covenant. Caiaphas is a teacher of the covenant. The elders are rulers of the covenant. The scribes are instructors of the covenant. These are people who were raised in God's covenant and who are now opposed to Christ. Why? Because they were never converted. Because their sinful nature was never changed. Because they were never brought to experience the gracious provision of regeneration. And so before people discredit the biblical doctrine of the Puritans, Reformers, and early church fathers, that children born even in the church left to themselves are reprehensible sinners, we ought to see this is the fruit of such sinners in the covenant left to themselves. This does nothing to deny the great privileges of those in God's covenant. In fact, what it does is it deepens the judgment against those in God's covenant because He has lavished upon them instruction, teaching, training, and yet they have held to their rebellion. Notice their brutality against His body is equally matched by the brutality of their mocking and blasphemy. It would be wrong for us to measure out which is worse because all is evil. The physical brutality is a hatred against Christ. The blasphemy would have sunk deeply within him as one who was most pure. And he hears these things. And so here's the picture of this contempt. There is an outward hatred shown to Christ and the inward hatred shown to Christ as well. Surely we see something of Psalm 2 being fulfilled as they gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. And yet, we see as well, brethren, wondrously, the working out of Isaiah 53. That here is Christ being presented by the Father to endure these brutal things and ultimately to be crucified. Before we pass, let us simply note that what we see here displayed, though it is an emblem, indeed, a pronounced emblem, it is not something that should surprise us. Because what's being displayed, regardless of learning, regardless of privilege, regardless of status, is the natural outworking of a sin-despising heart. Now think for a moment, because it may be that you're here, and you are even moved by this, and yet you're unconverted. Maybe you're a child of the covenant. Maybe you're a professing uh, believer. And yet you are a stranger to the reality and power of God's grace. 
this is the outworking of your sin if it is not that God saves you. And so what you need to come to terms with is what you read of is not actually foreign from you. It is what is intimately in you and is a desperate cry to you to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save you from the wretchedness of sin. Notice secondly then, the inconsistency of contempt. Contempt, of course, has various degrees, and yet all of it, however civil, however inexcusably cruel and brutal, all of it is inconsistent. And you can see that tremendously here in this passage. Sinners are always bold when they're given liberty. The restraint is removed, and there's no check against them. How ready they are to act bold. How ready they are to act thoughtful and credible and you know, concerned about what's right and what's good. And how ready they are to bring up oppositions and arguments and all sorts of different things. Well, notice here before us, we have this dignified court convened, verse 66. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council. This is the famed Sanhedrin, which is led by the high priest. And so we ought to remember the high priest is not only the one who offers up sacrifices, but he is the one whose lips are to keep wisdom and knowledge and to instruct and teach. And they're to judge between profane and pure, clean and unclean, holy and unholy. They're to be a presiding oversight of the matters before them in the Lord's house. Not just the temple physical, but the spiritual temple of God's people. And here they are constituted, convened as this court in order to now try one who is brought before them as charges. Brethren, one thing just to note as an aside, here is a link to church governance. Church government today is not something that is specifically New Testament. Church government is indeed biblical throughout. But we also see that even where there is right church government, if the men are not right, it can be used for the most worst, the worst of all things. And so here is a convened court in all of its dignity, in all of its honor. And yet, notice the inconsistency. Where is the due process? Where is the hearing of the evidence? Where is the consideration of God's Word? Where is any of this which would promote the dignity of this court? Whereas it's convened as a dignified court, its utter uh, inconsistency is evident everywhere it goes. You can see this in Christ's responses. He says, If I tell you, you will not believe. He says, Ye say that I am the Son of God. And it is then, of course, that they launch upon this, never entertaining the evidence which his whole life and ministry amasses together to dignify his claim that he is the Son of God. What's the point? Brethren, sinners left to themselves are never without the pretending unto dignity. They will always have an argument. They will always have a reason They will always have some subtle appeal unto a cause that is righteous. And yet, always 
denying that the righteousness strikes their own heart. And so with the shield protecting themselves from any accusation, they always have the sword leveled against the truth. And we've seen this in lesser ways. We've seen this in pronounced ways. Church censure comes and what a shame it is that the very purpose of the censure is to promote the one's good. And instead of laying open their chest and saying, I need help, they cover themselves and they put the finger against the one coming to them. That's what's happening here. Christ has come to the whole of His people and He said, I bring the kingdom of God to you. You must repent. Think of that word. He's called upon all men everywhere to repent. He's called upon the chief priest to repent. We read in Matthew's Gospel that before all of this happens, He pronounces the woes. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe unto you, chief priests, and so on. What's He done? He's come saying, you stand in yourselves condemned. You need to repent. But what do all of their refinements, what do all of their learning, what do all of their statuses bring them to do? It brings them to pull out their finger against Christ and say, let's talk about you. Brethren, this is not new in our day. You know, when people are guilty of scandalous sins, and they start with the finger against the one bringing the accusation, they're walking in the steps of the most scandalous ones in the history of the world. Judas is among them as scandalous, but surely the chief priest the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees who make up the Sanhedrin are those who ought to have been first in humbling themselves and saying, Yea, Lord, Your Word is right. You are the King. The inconsistency of this contempt is fundamentally realized when you think of these men who are guilty of perjury, of lie, lying, and of all manner of sin against this great king. So think of this. They're a court. The church today constitutes in its various courts, session, presbytery, general assembly, in the name of Christ the King. And so here is a court constituted. And they're constituted by the authority of God's Word in the name of God Himself. And yet the one who is the Son of God, who has brought clear accusations against them, who has come with tenderness to say, you have need to repent. I am the Savior. Now they come for the purpose of condemning Him. No one is under any illusion here. Everyone realizes the sole purpose is not to try Christ. It is to condemn Christ. And so they've set it all up, of course, with the betrayal through Judas. They've sent out these men with swords and staves, and now they've come, and they strike him, and they mistreat him. And all of this under the pretended facade of dignity, and yet how clearly the inconsistency is before them. Are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? Notice Christ with the utmost of dignity, with humility and grace. He says, so simply, if I tell you, ye will not believe. Now that's not giving them a ground, as it were, of uh, support. He's saying, you're not here interested in the, the matter of truth. 
You're not here to weigh the words, actually. Matthew, of course, opens it up more fully and gives the insight of all of the false witnesses that are brought together. You see the same in John's Gospel, and Mark highlights some of that as well. The point is, Christ is getting this clearly before them. Let's be honest here. With your pretended dignity, with your pretended concern for righteousness, with your pretended concern for what's good and what's honorable to God, you aren't in the least concerned about truth. Drill that into your mind when you're dealing with a sinner. However well educated, however outwardly supported by the church, drill that into your mind. They aren't servants of the truth. They aren't lovers of Christ. And given liberty, they would so act as these act now. As they challenge with questions, they won't be questioned. As they want an answer, they're unwilling to give an answer. But they come to the condemnation. What an inconsistency contempt is. Before we move on to the third, think of this for a moment. This inconsistency. When men have liberty, it's astounding how bold they are. It's astounding how ready their tongue is to move and to speak and how uh, teary they can be and how sincerely they can pretend to be. And yet here what's happening is the Lord is causing us to see behind all of that facade. To look as it were behind the curtain and say, I see what's going on. Christian, what does this do for us when dealing with such sinners? It ought to make us understand where the true battleground is. And if we understand the true battleground, it will make us earnestly pray for grace. It's true there's arguments that are needed. There are also times to be silent, as Christ is being silent on various occasions. But if we are desiring their repentance, fundamentally the need is not simply us you know, finding a way to be nice to them. It's not us finding the right argument for them. It's not us saying, you know, they've raised all of these questions. Of course they're raising questions. That's what Satan does. That's what sinners do. Because they're unwilling to let the sword of God be driven through their heart. What is the need? It's that their hearts would be changed, transformed. And so as you think about sinners in their sin, if you are a sinner in your sin, you are not in need of further arguments. The truth is clear. You stand apishly like these Sanhedrin members, pretending that your cause is a justifiable clause, cause, pretending that you've got the dignity of righteousness on your side, pretending that the burden of proof is on the other one. All of these things that men love to usher in, but get this clear. Christ says it so simply. Verse 69, Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And in Matthew, He will be coming in the glory of His kingdom. Your pretended dignity is but inconsistent. You refuse the truth which is patently clear, and in the end, it will lead to your undoing. This leads us thirdly to the foolishness of contempt. Christ 
asserts the foundation which is elsewhere more fully stated. We've just read it in verse 69. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. And likewise, it strikes our English ears a little strangely, but in verse 70, when it's asked, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. He's not like sticking it to them. In our English, we would say, It is as ye say that I am. You've said it. That's true. That's what he's getting at. So what's going on here? Why the foolishness? Well, one, because they're condemning without due consideration. They aren't actually functioning as a court is to act. They aren't carrying out what is their purpose. So you think for a moment, Solomon gives an example, right? Here's these two women, and the case is brought before him, and he's sifting between error and truth, discerning what is the actual matter. That is a duly constituted and rightly functioning court. He's he's pursuing it with wisdom, trying to discern what the matter is before them, before him. Well, this court has already reached its verdict, and its verdict is not based on truth. Its verdict is based on detesting Christ. And so they condemn without considering. Injustice, yes indeed, it is unjust. But think of this for a moment. Why is it foolish? Because those who judge will be judged. So Psalm 2 tells us, The kings of the earth gather themselves together. The rulers are gathered together. And yet it reminds us toward the end of the psalm that those who stand elevated above others will be judged by this son, this king. So think of that for a moment. The Lord comes in matchless humility, seeking our good, seeking sinners' salvation. And sinners refuse Him. And they have all sorts of arguments. There's an index that everyone draws from and they think they're so clever. But if you would just read the Bible, every single argument that is ever launched from every day has been given to us in the Bible. And all of them are unfounded. But men puff themselves up and they say, well, you can have your Christ. You take your Christ. Your Christ is foolish. Your Christ is powerless. What good is He? What good is the Bible? I don't need the Bible. And yet think for a moment. They're actually not duly considering the claims. Now, they love to raise questions. They love to go about and say, what about this passage? What about that passage? But what they fail to do is deal with what is basic, plain, and clear. Simple. Christ actually tells us, if you would know whether my doctrine is from above, do what I say. And yet, they refuse what is so clear and clearly given to them. So he says things like, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Now, there are particulars about that that need some help and clarity, but no one who understands language is hesitating at what Christ is claiming. They're not wondering, well, does this mean, you know, I'm supposed to compromise myself 10%, but 90% is for Him? No, he's saying, everything that my kingdom says is given to you to observe. My promises are given to you to believe. My commandments are given to you to obey. And yet they say, well, what about this strange, you know, marginal note in the Bible? I don't understand. Or, you know, these Christians over here disagree about these things. And all the while, what is clearly understood before them is there. And they ignore it. And so they condemn. Why do they condemn? 
Well, think of who's being condemned. The Christ. Children, you should know this. Christ, as mediator, has a threefold office. What offices are they? Prophet, priest, and king. And if they can condemn the prophet, priest, and king, at least to the satisfying of their own heart, well, then they're given the liberty to live as they want. If they can discredit His Word, well, then they have an avenue they think open to them to walk however they would desire. So they condemn, but they also condemn the anointed Savior. Children, we hope that you know there's a difference between the name of Christ and His title. The name of Christ is not Christ. The name of Christ is Jesus. That's the name He bears. Christ is a title. Anointed One. Messiah. And what this refers to is that He is anointed of the Father to carry out the purpose and mission of saving sinners. And so it is, we see this at various ways, in various ways, that He is the Anointed One. We've already referred to some of them. But you think when He's baptized of John the Baptist and He's coming out of the water, it is that the Spirit of God descends upon Him. He's anointed with the immeasurable gift of the Spirit. And He's empowered to carry out His public ministry as the God-man. He is the Anointed Savior. And when He read from the scroll of Isaiah... He reads the portion and stops short of the coming judgment. He stops short because his present commission at that time in his earthly ministry was to proclaim the jubilee, to proclaim the good news, to come and bring salvation to those who are dead in their sins and bring blessings from heaven above. Now who is being condemned? The Christ. The Son of God. The One who is the Son of Man. These three titles, Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, all portray Him as that Savior, commissioned by the Father. Think of what God the Father says, This is My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And now instead of hearing Him, they refuse and reject Him. Hear Him. Instead of hearing Him, will condemn Him. Hear Him instead of hearing Him, will chase Him away. Can we not see the utter foolishness of this? And what is it they gain? But further conviction, and apart from God's grace saving some, it would be their utter condemnation forever. In condemning the anointed Savior, they condemn themselves to condemnation. In refusing Christ Jesus as revealed in the Bible, They refuse the only hope of salvation any man has. So you think for a moment how the Bible is so plain in this. It tells us, Christ Himself tells us, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. Preaching of the apostles echoed that. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Paul testifies of it. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Through and through, the Bible is clear. There is one Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the only one. And now, He has been very clearly displayed to them. The public evidence is so overwhelmingly clear. And yet, through their pretended dignity, they condemn Him. Children, think of this for a moment. It's hard to imagine in a building this size. But if we were all over in this space of the building, and everywhere else was, as it were, shut off, 
And this was the only exit to my left, your right. And someone lit a fire in front of it. What would that do but condemn us to death? There's no other way out. There's no other exit out. And yet when people refuse Christ, when they defer Christ, what they're saying is fundamentally, I am content to be condemned. Now think for a moment whether that is true of you or not. Do you condemn the anointed Savior as too narrow-minded, as too uh, unworthy of your pursuit? The world is better. Other religions are better. Other thoughts are better. I'm better. I don't need Him. Well, here is the glorious Son of God who has come humbly to save sinners. Moreover, the foolishness is seen in that they condemn the One who has the right of judgment and will indeed judge. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. All power, all authority is given unto this One. And He shall come in the vengeance of the glorious God to bring forth judgment on the last day. We'll sing in a moment from Psalm 2 though we'll not sing the whole of the psalm. So you'll notice how that psalm ends when testifying against those who rage against Christ. There's an appeal. It testifies in verse 12, kiss the Son. Humble yourself. Give homage to the Son. Lest He be angry and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. What's the point? Don't mistake who this one is. Though He has come in meekness, tenderness, kindness, lowliness, He will come again with a vengeance that only can be described as divine. His wrath will be kindled. And when it is kindled but a little, it will indeed consume all those who have refused Him. You think of Nebuchadnezzar causing the furnace to be heated some several times hotter than it usually was. And the magnitude of that, that will be less than a match being lit compared to the little anger first displayed by God when Christ returns. What will it be when the fullness of His wrath is poured out upon those who have refused Christ? Well, we see here then the foolishness of sin generally and refusing Christ specifically. And whereas this ought both to evoke within us a holy hatred against such sin. It ought also to evoke within us and awaken a compassion toward the Christless who do this. Both of those things should be true of us in this life. We shouldn't go as some do and say, well, we ought only to be compassionate and not worry about the great shame put upon Christ's name. No, we need to be if we have any concern for the glory of Christ, overwhelmed by the shame heaped upon Christ's name. But we ought to be, as Christ was, humble in approaching such sinners, reproving them for their sins, not as it were capitulating, for Christ doesn't do that, but earnestly beseeching them, exhorting them to turn from their wicked ways that they indeed would be brought again to Christ. We'll see likewise how clearly 
grace is needed should ever one sinner be converted. And this is so pronounced, as we've already indicated. The Sanhedrin is comprised of the highest officers of the church. The chief priest, the scribes, the elders, Sadducees, Pharisees, all sorts of different Jews. And yet the elite, they're sitting with all of their royal apparel, as it were, and all of their priestly garb, and all of their dignity presented before uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, with all of their learning, with all of their honor, with all of their privilege, with all of their privilege of God's covenant, they resisted Christ because that's what sinners do apart from God's grace. Now, someone is ready to cry foul and say, that's not right, that's not good. Well, then what should we do? But realize, this is the just punishment of sin. This is what sinners deserve. Sinners deserve to be left in their darkness, their blindness, their arrogance, their pretended concern for righteousness and good and all of these other things, while all of it is a thin veneer hiding the hatred they have against God and His anointed. But here's the wonder. Christ in a few hours will be upon the cross. And while He's bearing the wrath of God, one of His sayings will be this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What we see here is how clearly grace is needed. And we see here as well how we ought to be earnestly beseeching the Lord for that grace on their behalf. And so when you think of the blasphemers, when you think of the scandalous sinners, when you think of those who under church censure flee from any actual concern for Christ, and that wells up within you a holy hatred, a right hatred against them for their sins, it ought also to cause you to say, what blindness is theirs, O Lord, be gracious to them. Deliver them from their sins. Finally, Believer, you may be touched by the remembrance of your own sins against Christ. It's always astonishing. As a pastor, you'll hear people, whether in the congregation or beyond, and people that complain against God's righteousness, people that complain against sin and so on, you realize they don't get it. Like they're not understanding. But often what happens is the tender-hearted are overwhelmed. And they come and they say, I'm so guilty. I'm so vile. I'm unworthy. And the pastor's heart is tuned to realize there's grace being displayed. And yet that grace needs nurturing. And if you sit touched by the horror of this scene and you realize that's what I am apart from God's grace, and you realize though converted, I was guilty of such blasphemy. I was guilty of mocking Christ. I was guilty of being so cruel against Him. It's true. And there's not relief for your present works outdoing your previous. The relief is found in this Christ who stands there bearing all of these insults, all of this mockery, all of this brutality, all of this injustice, And brethren, what you see before you is precisely what you deserve justly executed against you. Your sins have risen against God and you fundamentally have said, I am the one who can save myself. I don't need the Christ. Are you the Christ? And you would say, yeah, I am. 
Are you the Son of God? Listen, I'm good. I've got it all together. You and I unjustly taking that honor to ourselves because that's what self-righteousness does. And Christ plants Himself in our stead, puts Himself in our posture, in our position, bearing our sins upon Himself, and He receives all of this in order to atone for your sins. Here is your hope, believer, for all of your wickedness against Christ. Christ has paid for all. Would you stand with me for prayer?